0: Welcome to Public Historians at Work, a podcast series from the Center for Public History at the University of Houston. I'm Dr. Monica Perales, Associate Professor of History and Director of CPH. In this podcast series, we speak with academics, artists, activists, and community members about what it means to do history and humanities work for and with the public. In our second season, we're examining public history as it relates to medicine, health, and the well-being of our global community. For more resources on these topics and ways to support the mission of CPH, make sure to check us out at uh.edu/class/cph or find us on Facebook and Twitter at uhcphistory. Together, we can help reclaim our past. Digital versus analog. Big data versus qualitative research, humanities versus STEM, activism versus academia. For some, these concepts may seem like polar opposites, but both sides are integral to the work of Dr. Merlin Chakwanyun, a historian specializing in public health. In his conversation with Dr. Josiah Rector on December 7, 2021, Dr. Chakwanyun details his varied career on the intersection of history, data, and health advocacy. From publishing online once-secret documents from toxic chemical companies to contextualizing racial health disparities within the ongoing COVID crisis, Dr. Chaquanyun lives out the values of public history and encourages other historians to enter the crucial policy debates of our time. Let's listen in.
1: I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Merlin Chaquanyun to the Public Historians at Work podcast. Thank you so much. As a historian who works at a school of public health, you bring a novel perspective to conversations about public history. Can you first explain to our audience why you chose to pursue a dual degree program in public health and history at the University of Pennsylvania?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it kind of came down to language and technique, two things language and technique. So I was a historian, I am a historian of public health, and that's what I wanted to do when. Uh, I entered my graduate program, but it kind of became clear to me that with a lot of the things that I was studying, I work on the post-1945 period. And in this period, You have huge innovations in statistical methods and epidemiological methods and new terminology that appears to capture disease and the health of populations and so forth. And so it kind of quickly occurred to me that I actually couldn't understand a lot of the stuff in the primary sources I was reading and some of the source material, the journals uh, and so forth, or at least couldn't understand it as well as I wanted to. And so kind of by a fluke. One of my advisors, David Barnes, who is a historian of 19th century France and tuberculosis, he said that there is an opportunity for you, Merlin, to take a year or two off and do an MPH, a Master of Public Health degree. And I think you should do it because it would allow you to pick up some of this language that you're having trouble with in the sources and also some of the technique You might learn some uh, different kinds of methods that public health people use to answer various questions that you might be able to apply to uh, your own work. And you would also learn how to communicate with people who are not historians, but might benefit from historical insights. So it was really kind of a way to have a more structured boundary process. I had wanted to engage that non-historian audience um, as well as the historian audience, but Uh, This was a way to force me to do some reading that at times was very difficult and brutal. But, you know, when you got to go to class and you're getting a grade, that's a way to get get you motivated to, you know, read an epidemiology textbook or whatever.
1: So that leads to my next question. I'd like you to talk more about a concept you introduced in a 2015 article in the Journal of the History of Medicine and Allied Sciences. And this is the quote-unquote seat-at-the-table problem. You define the the seat-at-the-table problem as the frustration historians face in proving their importance and weaving their way into non-history circles, both inside and outside the academy. You argue that the the seat-at-the-table problem persists for three reasons, historians' use of language, methodology, and our disposition. Can you elaborate on how historians' use of language, methodology, and disposition can keep us out of certain conversations where we might make a real contribution?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is kind of a great follow-up question, Josiah, to the previous one. One of the things that I got a much greater appreciation for when everybody in my class was not a historian was I had to, in some ways, keep the historian switch on, but perhaps flick it in a slightly different way. And the slightly different way was that a lot of the humanities terminology that we throw out without thinking, that we use unreflexively, I noticed that if I use that language in front of people who were not trained historians or who read a lot of academic history, I wouldn't get very far. And I actually find this is a problem not just for somebody in that particular situation I was in, but situations where historians might find themselves with a potential opportunity to communicate with a non-historian audience, but instead they kind of act like everybody around them is familiar with not just history terminology, but broader concepts uh, in the humanities And the fact is that if you are in front of, say, I'll just pick an example, I'm often in front of health policy people. These are people who um, are trying to kind of craft policies for the here and now, and they speak the language of cost-benefit analysis. They mostly talk in the language of quantification. Um, I have to appreciate that that is the kind of paradigm that they have been reared in. And so I have to kind of modify my language a bit to shave off some of the way I would talk uh, to a historian and kind of adapt it to there. And I don't think historians are always great at that in terms of trying to find a common language that they they can communicate with non-historians. Methods. You know, I've been trying to think about this systematically, but at some point after, there was this kind of rise in the 1970s and the 1980s. I think a brief, Promising flicker that, for many reasons, then flamed out, and that was uh, this growth in uh, demographic history and quantitative history, and you know it was very exciting to have the manuscript census uh, from a number of countries where you could look at uh, historical changes in population patterns and so forth. But I do think two things happened. One is that stuff was oversold, I think, by uh, the the first generation of quantitative historians who promoted it. Uh, If you go back and read some of the manifestos by people like Robert Fogel and... I was wondering if you're going to bring up Time on the Cross. (laughs) Yeah, you know, there were a lot of various, you know, embarrassments or at least controversies around um, some rather reductive conclusions that were extrapolated from this research. But I also thought one of the tragedies of that was that instead of thinking about how to do that quantitative research better and in a less hubristic way, the discipline kind of just said, we're not gonna do quantitative research, period. So in contrast to my colleagues, my graduate student colleagues in political science and sociology, who are required to take one or two semesters of stats, you know, no matter what. Like even if you were doing ethnographies or interview projects or, you know, qu- content analyses of newspapers or whatever, didn't matter, you had to take, you know, the basic stats course. We don't have a sequence like that. And so I think one, one problem is that when we are around people like economists, like public policy people, like public health people, whose main method Like it or not, and I don't think it's a great thing that it's a mono method, but it is the reigning method, we have trouble actually talking to them. So the method issue is very much linked to the language issue. And then I think the third thing is, yeah, something I call disposition. One of the great joys, the reasons I got into history was it was so fun in those undergraduate classes, and you probably had a moment like this. And I think every history PhD, everyone who goes to graduate school in history has this. It was so fun to hear like the myths of history and triumphalist narratives and so forth get busted, right? And to know what the what the real story was. That was one of the reasons I I got in uh, into it. Um, I liked. I like busting myths, I like recovering narratives that nobody ever told, and so forth. But I think this disposition, this kind of critical disposition, which is, I think, one of the big strengths of not just history, but the humanities, it sometimes cannot go over particularly well with people whose orientation is fundamentally not a ruthless criticism of everything that exists but solving problems in the here and now. And so one of the taut lines that I've tried to walk when I'm talking to what you might call problem solvers, occupational problem solvers, is one, to try to inculcate a little bit more reflexibility and a critical instinct in what they're doing while at the same time not just dumping on them and saying oh well you know you're just a tool of neoliberal capitalism or your global health project is really just part of a long continuity of colonialism in a post-colonial world i don't think that gets one very far when you're uh, when you're with those kinds of audiences so i think keeping just knowing that and keeping it in the back of your head that you're here to ultimately try to educate and not alienate is is an important thing when you're dealing with those kinds of audiences. Yeah.
1: That reminds me, I once had a conversation with a, a colleague who asked me what my first book was about, and I gave him mm. the pitch. He said, that sounds nice, but how is that going to solve any problems? <laughs> right. But that was about five years ago. So I like to think I have a better answer now, but I can relate to that. That also makes me think about some of the specific projects that you've been involved in. Can you explain what Toxic Docs is and how you got into it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Toxic Docs is, I think, part of a, a current that, that has been dubbed civic tech or civic technology. Um, it used to have a kind of more narrow definition. The narrow definition was to make publicly available data, whether it was on COVID rates or you know who owns what kind of properties in a city or, or whatever else, make government data much more easily accessible. But I think the term more recently has broadened to any kind of technology that can be harnessed for the public good. I like the term because it's a nice counterpoint to what you often read in the news media about tech, which is very dystopian tales. And I actually agree with most of that coverage. But I think one thing that gets lost in it is that actually there are groups of people harnessing technology for, for the public good. And so I, I think Toxic Docs is one modest contribution towards that. So what is it? So Toxic Docs, it's it stands for documents, uh, not doctors. Uh, there are toxic doctors out there, but that's not what this is about. And you can go to it, uh, listeners can go to it by typing toxicdocs, D-O-C-S, org into their computer. And it's essentially a giant collection of once-secret Once classified documents that came out of the archives of companies like Monsanto or British Petroleum or Texaco, Dow Chemical, etc. About a host of industrial poisons that we all live with now. Uh, Dioxin, asbestos, uh, lead, polyvinyl chloride, PCBs, which are floating in all of our bodies right now. There are memos in there, studies, scientific studies that were conducted internally and never published about product safety, PR campaign plans, documents where lobbying strategies are discussed and so forth. And the idea was to make this stuff publicly accessible to anybody who wanted them. So these documents came out, the reason why they're no longer classified, no longer secret, is they came out of a legal process known as discovery. So a bunch of these companies following the tobacco lawsuits in the 1990s, and still now, they're getting sued left and right in kind of a tobacco-like way. And so one of the cool things that happens for us historians during these lawsuits is that there is a process called discovery where all of this stuff becomes public record. So that sounds great at first, but the problem is there's no like public records, beautiful room where anybody can go to, to look at this stuff. You basically have to get it from um, the attorneys. And then once you get it from the attorneys, it's such a massive amount of material that you don't exactly know what to do with like. 4 million pages of documents about PCBs or whatever. And so what we've done with this website is harness a bunch of innovations in information technology to make this keyword searchable, to make it so that in future iterations of the website, people can go there and say, pry out a list of of names that commonly recur over a huge amount of documents, many other tools and things like that. But the idea was to make this stuff that was once secret, publicly accessible, efficiently accessible and free on a website, ToxicDocs.org, and anybody can go see it now. So Toxic Docs
1: raises a number of interesting questions, I think, for academics, for people interested in public history. One aspect of this that I think might be worth discussing is the relationship between historians and the law. So there's a long history of historians serving as expert witnesses in lawsuits, ranging from civil rights to environmental litigation. But as the Toxic Docs Project shows, historians can play an indirect role in contentious legal matters by making evidence obtained through the discovery process you described available to the public. And obviously, those documents then may be used in ongoing or future litigation. In your view, what are the biggest ethical considerations that arise from historians playing this role? What advice do you have for historians who are interested in this sort of work?
2: Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. I think the biggest ethical consideration, also something for anybody interested in doing something like expert witnessing, is to realize that there's a Venn diagram aspect, to historical inquiry of the sort that a historian does, whether in a public setting or in kind of a more esoteric academic setting, and the courtroom. So in the courtroom, anybody who has watched, you know, court TV or a televised trial knows that when a witness is being questioned, it's very much choreographed beforehand, right? You generally ask questions that you have prepared the witness very well for. You have a certain kind of narrative that you follow very strictly. You present in what is called the adversarial process only those pieces of evidence that support your case, and you kind of downplay the stuff that doesn't support your case. And that's very different from how a historian approaches the topic. Like you and I, Josiah, when we are uh, writing an article or a book, we want to kind of look at as much stuff as we can possibly get our hands on in a reasonable amount of time. And then usually our writing is full of caveats, like, well, this happened. But on the other hand, if you consider this and, hey, maybe here's a third or fourth qualification. And that's not really how things go in kind of legal modes of of writing. So I think just understanding that is crucial. I think the second thing is to ask yourself, can you still be honest even in that adversarial mode that the courtroom dictates and this kind of unique way of arguing where you're kind of arguing super deductively? You kind of have the argument and then you find stuff that fits it. And I do believe ethically that that is possible. I think expert witnesses though should avoid one thing and do another. So the thing they should avoid is Only getting a certain slice of documents. So there are some expert witnesses who will do an expert witness or write what is called an expert report and only look at like 50 documents that an attorney hands to them on a silver platter. And I think that's wrong because with just 50 documents, you can't, with your own historical analysis, figure out what really happened. Um, You really need the full gamut of documents to make a conclusion about uh, what you think really happened. And then you have to make a call on whether you feel within the parameters of the courtroom making a claim. You know, you have the full story in your head. Are you cutting too many quarters, deviating too much from what you know to be the factual account when you write this report? If the answer is yes, and you still go forth and write the report, I think you're being a charlatan and a hack. But if you've read everything more deeply and you're only allowed to like cite, you know, with the exhibits that are registered in, in the trial, but you feel that the claim you've made is supported not only by the exhibits, but the full gamut of documents that you had access to. I think there are no particular ethical qualms at all, and in fact, you might actually have an ethical duty to testify if you're the only person on earth who really knows how to read those documents and contextualize it in the larger uh, historical story that reveals culpability. So that's my feeling on the on the ethical cases, but it's a great question. I thought a lot about what are the differences between legal action, legal legal historical inquiry and, and, and the kind we normally do. yeah.
1: In addition to those ethical issues, there's also, of course, the question of big data and digital humanities, Mm -hmm. uh, of which Toxic Docs is kind of an exemplar of both. So I'd like you to talk about sort of Toxic Docs as big data, as digital humanities. In a 2019 article in the American Journal of Public Health, you write the following about the use of big data and large-scale textual analysis in public health research. For all the potential they carry, these techniques and big data more broadly raise critical questions about current institutional structures. One is the question of standards. How will the researchers adjudicate among several ways of doing something? What kind of protocol transparency ought to be mandatory, if any? Then there is the need to update training in both public health and computer science and other related fields. Broadly speaking, how do you think graduate programs need to change to prepare future historians to use these kinds of tools?
2: That's an excellent question. Yeah, I mean, it kind of occurred to me, um, you know, people started emailing in a more rapid way, I think, in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And I guess 10 years from now, it'll be like writing a history of the New Deal in the 1960s. So we're not too far off from this era that seemed like this thing we could kind of keep kicking down the road and not worrying about. And that is an era where the majority of communication, at least for some people, is electronic. I say that to say that the question is more important now than it was when I was going to grad school. In terms of training, so I think a lot of graduate students I talk to in history or other related fields who are interested in quote-unquote big data or leveraging IT innovation for their analysis, they get really worried about learning every single possible thing about this, and you, you can quickly get overwhelmed. I say that because I think there's many ways to enter it. One is a lot of people worry that they've never programmed before. And so they worry about whether it's too late, whether it's not something that they uh, quite have the affinity for. And I actually tell them that's fine. You can always collaborate with people who can do the under the hood stuff with you. Those people need guidance on things like user interface, whether the features they make for users like historians or like the general public are actually useful. One of the big problems just website design, particularly databases, is something called feature bloat, where you have all these features and buttons that nobody ever asked for. I think historians are actually pretty crucial to, to serving as a bulwark against feature bloat so that's one thing i say is actually for people who are interested you don't actually have to start with coding as your first entry that said i do think the learning curve now is much much less steep than it was 10 or 15 years ago both the kind of languages that people generally use to build things like Toxic Docs or a number of other tools in digital humanities or whatever. They're just much easier to learn and that there are more resources now online and free <laughs> than there certainly was 20 years ago. So if you are somebody who is interested in doing under the hood stuff, not only are there more ways to enter, but once you enter, the learning curve is is just, just a, a, a lot less steep. I do think minimally whether one wants to get very technical or not technical whether one thinks learning using this kind of digitized data is for them or 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 not I do think you can't avoid the fact that it is changing the world around us, including the research ecology. So I hope graduate programs do introduce at least some kind of course that takes people through some of the major controversies and debates about how we store data, how we make it available, and so forth. And that's not a course that I think is fundamentally about technical gadgetry. It's a course about learning how to think about how we preserve material, how we sort it, and how we interpret it. I think it's it's such an early stage too that we're all kind of figuring out what what these kinds of courses should look like. Yeah.
1: Yeah, agreed for sure. You've written some really interesting work on health activism, and I know that is a major feature of your forthcoming book as well. So I'm interested in your thoughts about the relationship between activism and academia. In a 2017 article in Social Science History entitled Michael Katz and the Academic Activist Tension, you describe how you're thinking about the relationship between academia and activism evolved as a graduate student. Can you say more about this and the influence of Katz on your thinking? And also, what other mentors helped you form your ideas about the relationship between academics and the world beyond the ivory tower? I know you also work with Adolf Reed and a number of other scholars who are public intellectuals and activists as well.
2: Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. I was, and I still consider myself a politically engaged person on the left, broadly speaking. And so I think one of the questions that someone with those kinds of inclinations has when it comes to going to grad school is this question. And the question is, you know, am I wasting my time in often very arcane, navel-gazy, historiographic debates and you know, high-level theory and so forth when I could be out? Doing something, quote unquote, on the front lines. And the doing something has always has always been a little hazy to me in that in, the, in that question. But I think it's something we've all thought about. And the one conclusion I have, and Katz was very helpful in me thinking about this, was there's no one right answer for everybody because everybody's style of activism and what they think and what they're good at and what they can can contribute, is very different so i think he was very useful for helping me see that it's kind of a process Uh, it's not so much one answer of how to balance this academic activist tension but rather it's a constant process of asking yourself what can you contribute what are you know what kind of questions can you ask that might be valuable to others um so for those who don't know uh, michael katz was a a brilliant uh, social and public policy historian he was probably best known for a book called The Undeserving Poor. Uh, And there was a second edition that was basically, you know, not just a typical second edition where somebody just slaps a new preface on, but it was total overhaul of this book called The Undeserving Poor. And The Undeserving Poor, as many listeners may know, is a term that I think Katz is original edition of that book really popularized. And it's the idea that in the United States and many other countries, people who rely on public assistance are generally categorized into uh, two buckets. One is those who are deserving That is, those who are working hard and doing what they're supposed to do. And then there's this other blighted, stigmatized category called the undeserving. And these are people who are often stereotyped as as lazy, uh, living on the government dole, etc. And this book is basically a genealogy of where this idea of deservedness and undeservedness came from. And I had read this book because it was actually very influential in some of the late 1990s debates around welfare reform in the United States. And I just thought it was really compelling that a lot of people on various sides of that debate were using this book and citing it. And so it it was the first kind of taste I got that historians could actually be useful in uh, providing context for a lot of the various policy debates that occur. So Katz was always a model of 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 how to do that. He was not somebody who I would call an organizer or a front lines person. He was always most comfortable, you know, in front of the computer writing stuff. But he always was not afraid either to talk to people besides historians, including activists and other uh, kinds of advocates and asking them the sorts of questions that then would help inform the kind of questions he asked as well. So he was certainly one model you mentioned Adolf Reed. Adolf is a recently retired political scientist who works on urban politics and Black political thought, et cetera, and had a very different philosophy of of academic activist boundaries as well. He was very active in forming something called the Labor Party, which was this effort that began in the late 1990s to bring labor unions together, not as an alternate confederation outside of. AFL-CIO, but as a parallel one that would advocate for a number of social policy issues. And I'm actually pleased to say that the Labour Party hasn't quite been appreciated, but the notion of free college tuition and single-payer healthcare was very much, those were two of the big policy planks that the Labour Party put forward. But I always watched how Adolf did both those things. And he always seemed to have a notion of doing his very serious, intense academic work, but at the same time, having the second Adolf, who had a very vibrant civic life. And so that was another model, certainly. I think the third person is actually the figure whom I dedicate my book to. And he's a I don't know. I So I don't actually know the word for what, what a person in their 90s is. I know someone in their 80s is an octogenarian, and I used to refer to him as that, but now he's 94. But it was a sociologist named Herbert Gans, who had published a lot of classical ethnographies and other sociological work. He's a sociologist and had been actually played a lot of important roles in the uh, war on poverty and other kinds of 1960s policy debates and other subsequent debates including the welfare debate that we we discussed and uh, he's always somebody too who I think felt most comfortable in front of the computer screen but didn't restrict his thinking to the world of the computer screen and so was always very active in keeping his ear to the ground and thinking through what activists needed and what they were thinking about and so forth, and it informed his work. So I'd say those three are are certainly some of the guideposts I've looked to. Yeah.
1: Great. Thank you. In a forthcoming article entitled, What is a Racial Health Disparity? Five Analytic Traditions. You write, it may be time to aim for more holism and methodological diversity in how we study health and why some attain well-being much more than others, especially along racial lines. Or if our long decade of crises from 2008 to 2020 carries a single message, it is that it is no longer the time for scholarly business as usual, unquote. Can you say more about what you mean by this call for change? Because I think it dovetails with some of what you said in response to my previous question.
2: No, absolutely. So, I mean, in some ways, that article goes back to some thoughts I've been having since graduate school. So it's not surprising to me, Josiah, that you see that link as well. In graduate school, when I was doing my master's in public health, it was hard to avoid, and it still is hard to avoid, this giant body of work on racial health disparities. And what is this body of work? Well, everyone has probably seen it in some way, in some shape or the other, whether um, directly in, in the form of academic articles or distilled in the press. But it's basically study after study that shows that on a host of health outcomes, there are huge differentials between racial minorities and white people. And so I would see this kind of research over and over again. And at first, I found it incredibly disturbing and called to arms. I understood the why they were framing it the way they did. But after a while, being around it, you started to wonder, well, what am I supposed to do with this same research finding over and over again? And moreover, the same research finding that really doesn't tell you much about why this racial inequality in health occurs, but simply reports it over and over again. And so I did a deeper dive into the literature and I found that a lot of it was actually pretty redundant, but unavoidably so in a way because of what we discussed method so whereas one of the problems with history is that it's too qualitative and kind of ignores quantitative stuff the problem with public health research is the exact opposite it's way too quantitative and it doesn't think about things that perhaps cannot be measured neatly in quantitative ways and i think that was the problem with this with this racial health disparities research a lot of really well done well-designed quantitative stuff that in the end just told the same story and so i said well you know what's really needed here is not just the numbers that show this awful story but some kind of institutional and political and fundamentally historical context that explains why these inequalities exist. So it's really a call for the public health profession uh, and public health scholars to think in a much more methodologically ambitious way than they do. And so this article is actually, to tie it into Michael Katz, he wrote an article, it was one of the last articles he published, I think his penultimate article, the second to last article. It was something called, oh yeah, it was what kind of a problem is poverty? And he was looking at at it in much the same way that I'm looking at racial health disparities. Because poverty, if you ask somebody what is poverty, in some ways it's a really straightforward answer. It's a line, it's a quantitative line, and if you're under it, you're in poverty, and if you're over it, you're in not poverty. But the article says that 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 way of thinking about it really doesn't tell you anything about why people end up over the line or under the line or why the line exists in the first place. And so in this article, he actually looked at very various dimensions and narratives that people told about what the fundamental nature of poverty was. And so one of the one of the facets was poverty as a problem of persons which Katz himself didn't agree with. But um, these are people who would say, oh, the person is poor because they don't have um, certain kinds of skills or because they have certain kind of behavioral habits that don't make them successful at work and so forth or make them, makes it hard for them to even find work. So he just went through a litany of explanations that people have given for poverty and why it exists. Some of which he agreed with, some of which he didn't. I said, you know, that would be a cool thing to do for racial health disparities, because the thing I'm trying to uh, encourage people to do with racial health disparities is not just to think of it as a simple quantitative measure, but to think of what is its fundamental qualitative nature. And if you know that, then you can actually come up with better solutions on how to eliminate this gap and not just keep reporting it again and again. And so I kind of just did the same thing cats did for poverty with racial health disparities, yeah.
1: Okay, so speaking of issues with obvious contemporary relevance, you wrote a chapter on the Trump administration's response to COVID-19 for the forthcoming collection in the presidency of Donald J. Trump, a first historical assessment edited by Julian Zelizer. Did COVID-19 and the Trump presidency change your ideas about the role historians can and should play in discussions about public health?
2: It actually did, uh, and it didn't ways that surprised me. So that volume came out of a conference where a bunch of historians each got an issue, whether it was immigration or Middle East policy or whatever, and had to kind of historicize the Trump policy somehow. And man, when I got this task, I was like, "Why did I accept this task?" Uh, because I, and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I became like a Trump book junkie. I have both of the Woodward volumes. I have both of the Michael Wolff ones. So I was reading a lot of these blow-by-blow accounts and saying, geez, why am I doing this, man, following every little twist and turn of this dysfunctional presidency? And, And I was like, also, what do I possibly have to add? i mean i'm not maggie Haberman with you know a rolodex of sources that i'm calling every day i really she all these people know way more about the trump presidency and its ins and outs than i do how can i what can i add to this narrative about his terrible handling of covid that would improve on those narratives and then i kind of said you know that's not actually what a historian is supposed to be doing is the blow by blow account or that's not the most useful thing I should say, that the historian can do at this particular moment. What the historian can do is actually take that blow-by-blow stuff, but think about it in a longer-term context that the people who work on the blow-by-blow stuff often don't see. And so that's what I tried to do in, in, in that chapter. And the question I ended up asking, so the title of the chapter is called The 60-40 Problem. The 60-40 Problem. So what the heck does that mean? Well, it's on a I think historical question. It's it's a title I gave to what I think is a historical question that animates the entire essay. And the question is this: If you had to blame Trump, like had to apportion some kind of percentage of how much he is to blame, for the US's disastrous COVID experience. Would you blame him for 60% of it and 40% on non-Trump stuff or the other way around? And I ultimately came down on, I would only give Trump 40% of the blame and 60% of the blame on other stuff. And the other stuff was all the historical forces that I think really constrained the United States response to COVID beyond just this man himself, and beyond just this particular administration itself. And so some of the factors I looked at were, you know, our strange system of federalism, where local and state authorities have huge amounts of autonomy when it comes to public health emergency measures. Uh, that's why Florida and Texas, where you are, is so different from Connecticut and and New York when it comes to Everything from mask mandates to business closures and uh, temporary business closures and things like that. One force that I found particularly notable to highlight was kind of a culture of anti-expertise that I think you could root in at least the 1960s, but there are certainly precedents going way further back then than even that. There's a suspicion of science that begins in the 1960s. Science, medicine, a lot of other institutions that uh, generally were much less questioned. That impulse comes not just from the right, but also the left as well. And some of that that impulse was well intentioned, but I think unfortunately has also given rise to anti vaxxers and you know charlatans selling uh, you know all those kinds of questionable nutritional products and, and things like uh, things like that. But uh, this culture of democratization of science and questioning scientific elites has there's a lot of positive dividends that come from that. And there's also some pretty negative, I think, unanticipated consequences that came from that. And it's a historical force that again went beyond Trump. And the third was just really baked in deep social inequalities. If you look at who got COVID and who didn't, who was more likely to get COVID and who didn't, we know it is low-wage service sectors. And in large cities like Houston or New York City, uh, these low-wage service sectors are largely people of color, uh, immigrants, African-Americans who are at the bottom of the occupational ladder. These are preconditions that were there long before Donald Trump. And so I think taking that historical lens where you're not just so focused on the blow by below things that this Trump administration did, but also on the larger historical forces in which that administration operated was one thing that historians could contribute that the the day-to-day journalists perhaps could not.
1: I think that's a great answer. And I think this interview has been really informative. And I think you have a lot to contribute to these Bigger questions about uh, interdisciplinary collaboration, the use of d- big data and digital humanities, the relationship between historians and social movements and politics outside the ivory tower. I just have one more question for you. So, your first book, All Health Politics is Local Community Battles for Medical Care and Environmental Health, will also be out next year. How has your conception of your audience changed since you wrote your dissertation? What kinds of people do you hope will read this book?
2: Uh, that's a great question, Josiah. So, you know i I, I mentioned that the uh, title of the Trump chapter was the sixty forty problem, and I would say that if I had to name the the chapter that is my career at this point, it's the fifty fifty problem. You know I, I'd like to keep the historians there, but uh, write the book in a way where if somebody in the world of public health policy were to pick it up, particularly people who work on local level community-based programs of the sort that I write about uh, in this book, they could read it too. And it's interesting you asked this question because the book You know, I know people's books often, some of them are very similar to the dissertation. Some of them are very different. This one is very different from the dissertation, but not so much the substance and the arguments, but one of the things we talked about earlier, which is the language. I took out a lot of words that I think are very common in you know the world of the humanities, and another field that um, I'm kind of have my toe in, which is science and technology studies, which is, I guess, kind of looking at how um, broader societal currents affect how science scientific knowledge gets produced. And it's a wonderful field, but it is, I think, rightly critiqued sometimes for being very hard to read and full of long polysyllabic words. Uh, and so I cleansed that out because I knew that non history audience would. I'd lose them if I had that there. I also inserted a lot of policy lingo that um, I hadn't been as acquainted with when I wrote the dissertation to hook those people in. So I would say the aim is for both of those audiences. It's a line that is often uneasy and difficult to walk. But I think the compromises in language, um, adding some here, subtracting some here are, are the key are one of the key things to, to doing that. Yeah.
1: Great. Well, I'm definitely excited about it. And I'm sure uh, a lot of other people are, too. For our last minute here, where can people find your work online and learn more about you? Where would you direct them?
2: Uh, I got a website, uh, merlinc16.com. That's the best uh, place to go, I think, merlinc16.com. The 16 uh, is the number worn by Pau Gasol, my favorite basketball player. Uh, He actually formally retired this year. I'm from Los Angeles, and so that makes me a huge, diehard Los Angeles Lakers fan, and Powell uh, won us two championships in 2009 and 2010. So to honor him and my love for him, Merlin16.com. I don't really do the Twitter thing. I'm kind of interested in what you think of this, Josiah, because wondered about this with regards to public history. I tweet about sports and, you know, Lady Gaga and stuff, but I don't really use it for substantive stuff. And I'm not quite sure why. I have some misgivings about taking complicated historical debates and cramming them into, like, 250-character tweets. But, you know, on the other hand, public history is the art of distillation and simplification without losing the core essence. And so I'm wondering if I'm, am I making a mistake by not tweeting (laughs) about historical stuff? I mean, more and more historians uh, I know are on it and I'm feeling I'm abdicating (laughs) duty or something.
1: I I personally have a sort of a minimalist approach to social media, but that's really a personal preference more than anything else. But my personal take is that Although there are lots of famous historians who are very active Twitter users and many people find their contributions useful, I'm sure a lot of people also find your approach a welcome respite from the seriousness of much of academic social media commentary. Some people might be in the mood for thinking about basketball or Lady Gaga at the end of of, of the day. So (laughs) there's something to be said for a lighthearted approach, too, I think.
2: All right. Thank
1: you so much. We really appreciate you participating both in our speaker series and in our podcast. And we encourage our listeners to check out uh, Merlin's website and future publications.
2: Thank you both so much.
1: Thank you for
0: tuning in to this episode of Public Historians at Work. You can show your support for this podcast and the Center for Public History through a donation at giving.uh.edu slash public history. For more information about the diverse work of the Center for Public History, Find us online at uh.edu class slash CPH or on Facebook and Twitter at UHCP history. Remember, we are all keepers of our history.